Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Grant Percet. And we are excited to interview Dr. Gerald Schroeder today. Dr. Gerald Schroeder has quite possibly one of the most interesting and compelling resolutions to the age of the universe in the six days of Genesis issue that I've ever heard. And I am excited to talk to him directly about this today. I've read it. I've seen him on YouTube and in other locations talking about it. But today we get to talk to him in person. It's going to be exciting. Well, Dr. Schroeder is a respected scientist with a broad array of talents and expertise. He completed his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees all at MIT. He's authored numerous books. I would encourage you to go to Amazon and check out some of those, other academic journals, and even other respected publications. He speaks around the world and consults governments around the world on issues like nuclear disarmament. Some of the topics that he is known for include the emerging agreement and confluence between the discoveries of science and the truth of the Bible. His books include God According to God, The Hidden Face of God, The Science of God, Genesis and the Big Bang, and, well, What About Dinosaurs? Learn more about him at GeraldSchroeder.com, and I'm going to spell that out for you. That's G-E-R-A-L-D. S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R. Again, that's G-E-R-A-L-D-S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R.com. So please go to Gerald Schroeder to find out more about Gerald Schroeder. I invited Dr. Schroeder to join us on the show because I think he has a fascinating resolution to an age-old problem, the problem of the age of the universe and the days of Genesis. Welcome to the God Solution Show, Dr. Gerald Schroeder. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Dr. Schroeder is halfway across the world in Jerusalem, Israel, one of the most beautiful cities you could ever imagine visiting. I can't wait to be there this coming summer. And I envy you a little bit this morning here on our on our side of the world that, that you get to be over there. So uh, uh, how is it today in Jerusalem? Well, I'll tell you right now, it's, 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 it's dark and a bit of winter. <laughs> the beginning of winter. Wonderful. It's nighttime here. It is nighttime. You guys are daytime. We're, we're, we're quite a bit different from you, but nine hours different. <laughs> so before diving into the topic of the age of the universe and the days of Genesis, I wanted to mention the respect that I as a Christian have for you and the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. I loved visiting there with my family a couple years ago. I look forward to returning there soon. Uh, we pray often for the peace of Israel and for all of you living there. And uh, we just, we're, we're, uh, we're your brothers on the other side of the ocean. So uh, thank you for being on the show, and, and thank you um, for uh, all that you do over there. Well, I thank you for that statement. I'll tell you, if the world would embrace the Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, there would be peace in the world. Amen. All right, well, let's talk about the science. Does science refute the existence of God? I think it's the exact opposite. The more we learn about science, the more clear it becomes that there's a force, a divine force, we can call it God, active in the world that created the world. Hmm. 
So, so, it's, the, so it's the exact opposite. Science doesn't refute uh, God or the Bible. Science comes comes essentially to say there's no other option available but to understand there's a creating God. So, Dr. Schroeder, uh, why should those who study science believe in God specifically? Well, it's kind of like we just had a rainstorm here. We had a beautiful rainbow, a magnificent rainbow that went from, was a complete loop from one horizon to the other. Understanding the physics behind the light beam that make a rainbow doesn't make the rainbow less beautiful. Actually, it makes it more beautiful because you wonder, you realize the wonders of the world. The same, I would say, is the understanding the nature of the world. The science, a scientist studies how the world works. And the more we understand how the world works, the more magnificent it is that this symphony of these laws of nature put the world, allow life to exist. The more we study science, the more beautiful the world becomes, the more godly it becomes. Yeah, I would agree. You know, the scientist always charges the theist with uh, believing in the God of the gaps. But a lot of times, a lot, and I should say the scientist loosely, maybe the secular scientist would be a better way to put that. But I know a lot of times the secularist believes in the science of the gaps. Science can explain everything. And as a scientist, do you believe that science can explain everything in the universe? No, no. First of all, there, even, even in the world as we know it now, there are things that would be called miracles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes miracles are God manipulating the world, manipulating nature. So you would see it not as a miracle. When the, when the Hebrews came out of Egypt... The, sea, the famous opening of the sea right before them. Now, you could say that's a miracle, but the text in, in the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, says that God used the wind to split the sea. So the wind you could see as a miracle, and you could see that the wind was uh, just natural. Certainly the Egyptians following the Hebrews into the sea thought it was natural because they went right into the water after them. Only, but so, so they have been this world. But there are answers to questions that we will never have, like, for example, the creation of the universe. That is to say, the origin of the laws of nature that God used to create the universe. What's the origin of these laws? There's no scientific explanation. If I may inject something right here at this moment, especially about this, why why scientists should study God and Darby people should study science, I made a video about two years ago, there were way over four million views, four million views on a video called Proof of God in Five Minutes. I urge you, you or your listeners, I get, I'll make it clear, I don't get one penny or an, an Israeli money, one shekel for any of this work, okay, of this video. But there are four, over four million views. It's interesting, when someone did a survey, half the views were Christian and half the views, wow. views were Jewish sites. So it's across the board. But proof of God in five minutes, it actually takes five minutes and 28 seconds. We did it with no, no script whatsoever. Had no idea it would go anywhere like this. The graphics are great. I didn't do the graphics. I don't know how to do graphics. I take no credit for that. But I am the talking person and talking head there. And I urge, I urge Nate, you and, and Grant and, and your listeners, it's, I use only data. This is an example of science coming to the Bible. I use only data from NASA, National Space Authority, no data whatsoever, no Bible data, totally science data, to show that the creation of the universe by the scientist is an exact description of the creation of the universe as related in the Bible. 
It's a one-on-one match. That's why there are 4 million views. And you can find that video at GeraldSchroeder.com, right at GeraldSchroeder.com. It'll be the first thing you see. You talked about the creation of the universe. Now, some might call that creation event the Big Bang. Some might call it creation. But the question I have is, does the Big Bang refute God's existence or creation, or are the two somehow reconcilable? Is the Big Bang potentially scientific evidence for God's existence? I think it's 100%. Remember, 100% in favor of God. How I say it in my classes, the discovery of the Big Bang is great news for God. I mean, people, <laughs> because the term the Big Bang doesn't say what made the Big Bang go bang. The term the Big Bang is a, ter- a secular term which allows a secular person to say that the universe had a beginning. Now, remember, Nate and Greg, remember less than, less than 50 years ago, if I were back at MIT and giving a lecture, on, let's say, I say the age of the universe. People might have protested because less than 50 years ago, the overwhelming scientific opinion, overwhelming, was that the universe is eternal. Most persons are not aware, aware of that, but it's pretty new news scientifically. About 45 or 50 years ago, it sounds like a lot to young people, but I'll tell you, in the terms of humanity, zero, less than 50 years ago, the understanding of the universe and the scientists, not the theologian, was that the universe was eternal. And then two scientists, Arnold Penzias and Robert Wilson, Penzias a Jew, Wilson a Christian, against this Judeo, again, the Judeo's Christian web, this, this magnificent cloth that the world has in it, demonstrated that there was a creation overnight. We realized before that when the universe was considered to be eternal, the Bible was wrong from the first sentence. The Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Well, if the universe is eternal, forget the creation. And that was the understanding. The Bible was wrong from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And then overnight, these two scientists found the, they got the Nobel Prize for it. Mm-hmm. And they deserve it. That, that the universe, they discovered what's called the, the echo of the Big Bang. And suddenly, bingo, instantaneously, the world changed. The Bible got it right. 3,500 years ago, the Bible said there was a creation. 50 years ago, science finally said, you know, you're right. There was a creation. Mm. That's a big deal. So the, so the big, the discovery, I call it the Big Bang creation. That's the way I talk about my talks. The Big Bang is another word for creation. And the term the Big Bang was actually caused in derision by, by uh, Fred Hoyle, who thought the universe was eternal. And his colleagues thought it was eternal. And he was being interviewed on the, on the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, about 1951 or so. And the, and the interviewer, knowing that Hoyle failed, Professor Hoyle was a major scientist at the University's Eternal. So the interviewer said, well, Professor Hoyle, what do you think about you? You know, your few colleagues that think there was a creation. And his reply was, oh, yeah, they thought there was some kind of big bang. <laughs> the press picked it up. The big bang was coined and deterred, but it turned out to be true. So now we have the big bang creation. It's great news for God. There was a beginning. Again, the term the Big Bang only says that there was a beginning, a creation. The Big Bang does not say what made the Big Bang go bang. That's science after that. Very interesting. So, so science does not refute God. So what, what do you like to say to someone who asks you, does modern science refute the Bible specifically? I would say the problem with them is either they don't know a lot of science or they don't know a lot of Bible. And I've had that... You know, it sounds silly, but in the, to get the, the, the publication of my first book, thank God, after that was straight, easily. The publication of the first book, Genesis of the Big Bang, 
it was a concept that hadn't been understood, this idea of this integration. And I saw the rejection letters before it was published by Bantam Doubleday, which is the largest publisher in the world at the time. Was, in fact, it was a coup. It was the first time a secular publishing company published a book like this, Science and Bible. But, but what was interesting, the rejection letters made it clear. The person rejecting either knew a lot of science, didn't know much Bible, or didn't know, didn't know much science, but knew a lot of Bible. The difficulty is once a person takes the trouble, let's say he's a scientist, takes the trouble to spend, let's say, uh, a few hours a week just reading through the Bible and looking at the ancient commentaries, etc., you will see that there's no conflict. It's only from ignorance. The idea that science may refute the Bible or that the Bible conflicts with science is only from ignorance. Often theologians that know a lot of Bible don't know much science. And they put their foot in their mouths and they say silly things that the Bible never said about science and, or vice versa. The scientists say, well, doesn't the Bible say this? And I say, nothing at all. Don't say that at all. You know? but, so it's ignorance. On, on, it's on both sides of the aisle, unfortunately, yeah. not just on the scientists and not just the theologians. I thank God. It was, I'm just very, I know, fortunate, blessed, whatever, I know what to say. Someone said, it's called a blessed, uh, I just say, it's, I was lucky. Because I studied a lot of science, thank God, MIT is a good place to learn it. And I, and I, I stumbled into it. I learned a lot of Bible. Wow. And uh, a lot of it's in the original Hebrew. We have to realize the Hebrew is a very ancient language, very ancient. So it doesn't have a lot of words, like English has vastly more words. Than, than Hebrew has. So each word has many, many meanings folded into it in the Hebrew. Hmm. And that's why in understanding the Hebrew text, I only use ancient commentary hmm. on those words. I don't use any modern commentary because a modern commentator already knows about dinosaurs, knows about the Hubble telescope, knows about billions of years. And the, the, the tendency sometimes is to, to bend the Bible to match the science or vice versa, bend the science to match the Bible. But if I'm using... Just to mention a name, I'm using a, a commentary, let's say, the Talmud, 1900 years ago. You know, they weren't digging up fossils, but, yeah. but they talk about ancient beings that would resemble what we call fossils today, uh, etc. It goes on. So I use ancient biblical commentary and the, and the Hebrew text of the Bible and modern science, and, and they match like a hand in the glove. <laughs> it's more than that. They match like a right hand and a left hand, because each one lets us understand more about the other. That's a good way to put it. That is a really good way to put it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can go to godsolutionshow.com for more on The God Solution. So Anthony Flew, who has been called the world's most notorious atheist, at least before Dawkins and at least before uh, Flew uh, passed on, he came full circle and rejected atheism and uh, converted to theism, and he credited you with a lot of that. What was your relationship with uh with Anthony Flew like? Well, I'm, uh, when I first met Anthony Flew, a wonderful human being from not too far from you, from, uh, from uh, Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. a man named Roy Borghese. It, it took me from Israel, flew from England, Anthony Flew, Anthony Flew, when he didn't fly, Anthony <laughs> Flew from, from England, and two or three other people, and put us together in a studio in, in Lower Manhattan, New York City, at Northeast, at, I think it's, uh, what is it, NYU Film Studio. And we filmed a discussion that took two and a half days, and it comes out to be like in, in a DVD, I think it's called Science Discovery Guard. It lasts about an hour, an hour or two. And even, 
I had never met Anthony Flew before, but what's important is I didn't know the impact that my books had on him because that would have made me uncomfortable. You know, a person has a certain lifestyle, and I tried to make them unhappy. But we, we spent two or three day, two days uh, and a bit talking with each other, discussing these problems, and the deeper we discussed it, he was already on the track to making this change. He, uh, so I would say our relationship was that we respected each other professionally. Okay, and his his atheism was based on a, a he's a, was a, he died about five years ago a brilliant philosopher, but knew very very little science, and the more I'm, 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 and I'm talking about people friendly science, not not a, a, a third order differential equations. I'm talking stuff that anyone can understand what is described, and the deep and the deeper we got into this. He finds, well, he's, he's, well, his statement was so beautiful. He said, I follow, I follow the school of Socrates. I go to where the truth leads me. Now, that's a brave man. And the more he learned about this, the more he realized and realized. And finally, he publicly, in, in, on, on television, in writing in a book and in journals, apologized, apologized for having led people astray for close to 50 years. That there is a God. That's the name of his, one of the books that he wrote. It's called There Is a God. Wow. Uh, and, and the original, the, and if you look at the cover, it's interesting. The cover says there is no God, and there's a line through the no and an A above it. There is a God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's true. The more people understand science, science is the friend of the Bible. I mean, there's one creator for the science and the Bible. So they can't conflict mm-hmm. once you know them both. Right. Right. Now, Anthony Flew's book I get is... Carried, I, get, I apologize, I get carried away with stuff because it's no, so exciting. Do, yeah. and I live inside it. No, this is excellent. This is excellent. In fact, um, just to follow on, Flew even said, I am very impressed with physicist Gerald Schroeder's comments on Genesis 1, that the biblical account might be scientifically accurate raises the possibility that it is revelation. So I guess my question to you, sir, is what about Genesis? Is it how would you explain that it's scientifically accurate? Well, I mean, the big question, I'm not going to get into the nuances of the Hebrew, but the big question is Genesis chapter 1 in 31 sentences starts from the creation of the universe and you end up with humans and Adam by verse 27. So, so there's not a lot of information, but it is divided into six days. And at the end of each day, we read in the Hebrew, the Eder Evoker. There's even, there was morning. I'm not going to get into this translation, but the numbers are important. The first day ends, it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. There's evening and morning, one day. The next sentence, a few verses further, the next day ends, evening and morning, a second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, the sixth day. So the commentators over a thousand years ago, make this clear, not modern, not Schroeder, I just was the lucky one that has the numbers. Said, why does the Bible say day one? It doesn't say day two, day three. It says second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Why doesn't the Bible write this evening and morning a first day? And the answer is overwhelming. The answer is so brilliant. The commentator is 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago. The Bible could not write a first day on the first day because the only time that you can write first is when it's relative to a second. 
and there hadn't been a second day on the first day. Now, we all see this with the world wars. I can give personal experience. I was in the Israeli army. But I'll leave that aside because I don't have no record how you listen to this feel about Israel. But I'll just tell you, I, I, during I, the first war... I can assure you, most of our listeners are, are firmly in your side of the in your side of the uh, court here. Well, okay. So, the, so in the World Wars, no one called the First World War the First World War during the First World War. It was the Great War. See, the, but by the Second World War, it became the First World War because there wasn't. So the commentary two thousand years ago was you couldn't say a first day on the first day because there's no second. I fought in Lebanon. Okay. I fought in the first Lebanese war. In that first Lebanese war, not one of us fighting in the Lebanese war, including my poor buddies that didn't come back from Lebanon, none of us called it the first world war. We were fighting, I mean, the first Lebanese war. We called it the, we were fighting in Lebanon because these jerks up there want to attack us all the time. Okay, so, but now, we, I have, why do I have to say I fought in the first Lebanese war? Because unfortunately, there's been a second. So I just give an example in the world wars, how it changes from the from from being able to say one to being able to say first. Now the nuance and in, in, in this is that is that day one there hadn't been a second day. Well, that's interesting because the Bible was given at Sinai, which is a few hundred thousand days after Adam. So there've been plenty of second days by Sinai. So if the Bible were seeing the six days of Genesis. From Sinai, looking back, it would have written there's a first day. Why? Because by the time they get up to Genesis, get up to Mount Sinai, there's been a couple of, it's been, it's been almost 200,000 days. It's 2,448 years. So there's thousands of days. The only reason the Bible says day one is that the Bible sees time for the six days of Genesis from the beginning looking forward. Now, why that should have interested anyone 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago, I don't have a clue. I know now why. I'm not an astronomer, my background is nuclear physics, but I read astronomy textbooks, I know exactly why. Because when you view an event from a, from a different perspective, you get a different measure of time in this universe. We look back in time, it's not relativity, it's true astronomy. We look back in time and we see billions of, 14 billion years went by. How would those 14 billion years be seen from the beginning looking forward? That's the key, because the Bible sees time from the six days of Genesis up to Adam, up to Adam, verse 27, where God creates Adam. The Bible is looking forward from the beginning, looking forward. Okay, that's a crucial. We look back in time, and we measure 14 billion years, and they went by. You make that measurement anywhere else in the universe, you get a different answer. Could be a tiny difference, a difference, a big answer, but there's no one one absolute age. But the age of the of universe for our measurement is that 14 billion years. There were dinosaurs that disappeared 65 million years ago. Dinosaurs did first appear about 230, 240 million years ago. The Earth did solidify about 4 billion years ago. It's nine zeros, et cetera, et cetera. And the creation was about 14 billion years ago. Those years went by as we measured time. But what were those years? And that's our measurement. We don't live in the Bible's perspective of time, but the Bible's perspective of time is from the beginning looking forward. Okay, here's a crucial thing. All ancient commentary, with zero exception, or ancient commentary, with zero exception, says that when the Bible says there was day one, a second day, a third day, the Bible is not talking about sunrise and set, but the Bible is talking about 24 hours each. And the commentary reads the days were 24 hours each. 
like the six days of our work week. Like, so you can't, like the six days of our work week. So you can't see the hours we did. So six 24-hour days or six 24-hour units of time, I want to say it, went by. We, we see that in 14 billion years. And remember, when the Bible reaches Adam, the perspective of the Bible switches from this cosmic view, from the Bible's perspective of time, of looking forward from the beginning, to earth-based. How do we know that? Because in chapter 5, when the calendar begins again, it says Adam and Eve live 130 years, have a kid named Seth. Seth lives 105 years, kid named Enosh. From Adam forward, these guys, these guys and gals were having babies and families on earth. So from Adam forward, the perception of time is earth time. It was these billions of years. But the six, or the, whatever it was, but millions, thousands, whatever it was. But from, from creation up to Adam, it's cosmic time. We measure that span as 14 billion years. The Bible sees it as six 24-hour days. And I'll tell you, when the number came out of the equation, even when I speak with now, I get goose pimples. My kids, I'm saying, oh, daddy, obviously you were, Abba, Abba, your hair standing up. It's, it's scary. It actually matches because when we, I have to transfer these 14 billion years from my perspective, looking back in history, back to the beginning, looking forward from, the, from just after the creation. There are nuances at my website, I deal with this, and my books, I deal with it. So we want the details. But as we go, as we move information back to an earlier and earlier time, as we measure from our time, but now going back, we go back to the time when the universe is smaller and smaller. Remember, the universe starts at a small point and expands out. And the key is that when you transfer information back in time to a time when the universe is smaller or is more compressed, time compresses exactly one-on-one. -on -one. Any astronomer that's listening to this, we listen to this program right now, see, what's the big deal? We know that. Everyone knows that. Everyone that's in astronomy knows it. And it turns out that the ratio of this expansion of the universe from the beginning when the clock begins, when matter forms, and going forward, that expansion, if I run it back in time, I can measure the expansion. Those are numbers that we know. We don't know the exact size of the universe, but we know how much bigger it is now than, I'll say, then, okay? There's a then has a nuance to it. But, and that, that ratio turns out to be, and it's not my number, I'll make it very clear, it's not my number, it's 900 billion. Well, either Nate or Grant, if you got a piece of paper, you put 14 billion years, and then divide it by 900 billion. 900 billion is how much the expansion is, so I have to go back by 900 billion, I have to compress it, because I'm, I'm going back to an earlier time, an earlier view of time, the Bible's view of time, and that's an, ex an expansion or reverse compression of 900 billion. Well, when you divide 14 billion years by 900 billion, the billions drop off because in 14 billion years divided by 900 billion, a ratio, you get 14 years divided by 900 because the billions drop. And that comes out to equal, it's hard to believe, five and a half days, which is an exact match. It's almost embarrassing because Adam has created verse 27 of Genesis 1, which is halfway through the sixth day. Well, I hope you enjoyed this first part of our interview with Dr. Gerald Schroeder. Again, what he's been trying to say in this interview is that both the billions of years age that scientists come up with and the six literal 24-hour days of Genesis are compatible when we realize that there has been a 900 billion-fold expansion 
of the universe since creation. And again, the expansion of the universe is something that is mentioned multiple times in Scripture. So the problem isn't necessarily the problem that some think it is. Again, go to GeraldSchroeder.com to find out more about Dr. Schroeder and to see more about his works and to investigate a lot of the resources he has there at his site, including his books, which I suggest you check out as well. Anyway, again, I think his resolution of the issue is one of the best I've ever heard. If you want to get the rest of this interview, you can go to GodSolutionShow.com to find this interview and all of our past shows. Well, as we conclude, I would implore you to begin a relationship with God through faith, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. You could go to GodSolutionShow.com, and while you're online, go ahead and go to GeraldSchroeder.com as well and get to know more about Dr. Schroeder. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Have a great rest of your day, and tune back in next week for the second part of our interview with Dr. Schroeder. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.